All right, uh, let's bow our heads and let's, uh, let's pray before we get into a time of praise. Father, I want to thank you so much, Lord, for the life that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. That I pray that in this season where there is so much fear, I pray, oh God, that your love will cast out fear. Father, I pray that in this season when there is so much divisiveness and questions and doubts, I pray, oh Lord, that our eyes remain steadfast upon you. I pray, O oh God, that in the season where there is the situation of death looming in the horizon, I pray, O oh God, that we remember that you have overcome death. And I pray, God, that in this moment as we gather as your people to worship you here, may we be called in, Lord, in order to be sent out. May you use us as a vessel of your kingdom. And Father God, may you bring your sons and daughters home. In this season. I thank you so much Lord. May our praise. May our worship. And may this time. Be an offering unto you. May you be pleased with it. And may our worship Father God honor you. We pray all these things in Jesus name. Amen. Let's all rise. Let's get ready for worship guys. Who are we? 
I'm gonna see a victory. I'm gonna see a victory for the battle. Let's sing that again. I'm gonna see a victory.
power in the name. Power in the mighty name of Jesus. Every war he wages, he will win. I'm not backing down from any giant. I know how this story I know how this story is. I know how this story ends. I'm gonna see a victory. I'm gonna see a victory. For the battle belongs to you, Lord. I'm gonna see a victory. I'm gonna see. That again. I'm gonna see a victory. I'm gonna see a victory. For the battle belongs to you, Lord. I'm gonna see a victory. I'm gonna see a victory. For the battle belongs to you,
I'm gonna see a victory for the battle belongs to you, Lord. Let's pray. Uh, dear God, um, it's just truly an honor and blessing to just be able to sing your um, praises freely. Um, I think we take that for granted at times, but uh, maybe this COVID time has shown us a glimpse of um, not always being able to just have that opportunity. So I pray that um, we may um, really heed these moments of just hearing your word um, as a congregation, um, we can hear it elsewhere, but it's just not the same. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, what's going on, TLC? Glad you guys are here. Welcome, friends and family. Those at home, why aren't you here, guys? Come on. All right. Hey, I'm going to say spread love. You guys are going to say not fear. Okay, ready? ready? Spread love. All right, say it like you mean it. Spread love, not fear. You know, in a, in a season when there is a lot of fear, the one thing that the church, people who follow after the name of Jesus Christ, ought to be doing is spreading love. Amen. Right. I want to share with you guys a message today. I want to share with you guys a word from the Lord. And, you know, in, in our head pastor, Pastor Lynn, uh, wanted me to address the, the, the looming issue that's coming before us this week. He wanted, us, he wanted me to address the, the problem or the issues of politics that's going to be huge in the next following weeks that's going to be happening in our country and the world around us. And the problem sometimes is, church... We, we take some random stand and we forget where does Jesus stand with this, okay? Today, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. Today, I'm not going to tell you what to focus on. Today, I'm going to tell you what Jesus did in the midst of a political question that was placed before him. And if Jesus is who he says he is, and if he is our Lord and he is our Savior, then that response that he gives ought to be our response as well. That position in which he takes ought to be our position as well. Okay? My goal here today, church, is to help you have a Christ-centered mentality when it comes to dealing with the political climate that we have today. I want to help you guys through the word of God, understand how to navigate this political climate. You guys following me? You're at home, right? I want it to be in such a way where your heart is about spreading love and not fear. Okay? So, we're going to open our Bibles to Mark chapter 15. This is the first time that Jesus stood before a political order. This is the first time where he stood before a political government and they were asking him questions. And the person who was in charge who was asking him questions was a guy named Pontius Pilate. 
And he asked him three basic questions. And how Jesus responds to these three questions is how I hope and how I pray that you would understand how a believer and how a follower of Jesus ought to approach this one. I really believe this. And if you would follow after the lead of our Savior, you would have the stance, the composure, and the focus to bring about unbelievable change. That is God-honoring, that is loving, that is Christ-focused. You guys follow me? Three questions that Pontius Pilate is going to ask Jesus and how Jesus responds is how we're going to learn from this. Okay? He's going to ask three questions. First question he's going to ask him is this. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. We're going to read verse 1 and 2 first. He asked him the first question. A governor asking Jesus this question. Check this out. And them, oh, I'm in the wrong book. <laughs> Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. All right. Verses 1 to 2. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Are you the king of the Jews? That's the first question that Pilate asked Jesus. Now, how Jesus responds is unbelievable. Let me check this out. See, Pilate is not asking a theological question. He's not asking Jesus, hey, Jesus, are you the Messiah that the Hebrew scripture has been talking about? Are you the one that's going to come and save the Hebrew people? He's not asking a theological question. Pilate wanted to know right, is Jesus literally the king, the reigning supreme authority of the Jews? He's asking him the question, are you a political leader, Jesus? Are you a person, is, is your movement going to have some political implications? Will what you do have an impact on political power? Pontius Pilate was asking him a political question, are you the king of the Jews. And check this out. How did Jesus answer? It is as you say. It is as you say. A couple chapters back, Mark chapter 14, when Jesus was before the, the religious court, all the teachers of the law, the Sanhedrin, say, hey, Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Savior that we've been waiting for? And you know what Jesus said? I absolutely am. Before Abraham was, I am. So I am God himself, was what Jesus told to the religious court. But before the political court, before the political court, what did Jesus say? It is as you said it. He didn't say yes, and he didn't say what? No. He didn't say yes, and he didn't say no. He said, you said it. Okay? What does that mean? It's not a denial. It's not an affirmation. Jesus could have said no. He said, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, right? I'm a spiritual leader here only to give spiritual truth. I have no qualms with you, nor do I want any political power. Did he say that? He didn't say it. He said, it is as you say. And on the other hand, he didn't say, yes, I am a political leader. Jesus' answer was this, yes 
and no. You guys get me? When they asked him, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? His answer was yes and no. Yes and no. Right? And what he means is, what I'm going to do is going to have a lot of political ramification, but I'm not a political leader the way you think I am. What I'm about to establish among my people is going to change the world around you. But I am not a political leader the way you're thinking about. See, and it's absolutely critical, church, you guys, right here. It is actually very critical that you understand this answer, the answer of yes and no. Or otherwise, what you're going to find yourself happening to your life is that you're going to fall into this category of either going way extreme to one side or way extreme to the other side. A Christian, when it deals with the political order, is on the fence of yes and no. See, if you ask Buddha, Buddha, are you a political leader? He would say, no, I'm not. I'm a spiritual leader. You ask Muhammad, Muhammad, are you a spiritual leader? I mean, a political leader. He said, yes, I most certainly am. You ask Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Do you have political power? Are you going to make political ramifications? Are you going to create a movement that's going to change the political order? And Jesus says, yes and no. You have to understand yes and no. You have to understand the phrasing of yes and no, because if you understand this, you're going to be able to navigate what's coming, okay? See, in Mark chapter 12, let me show you, let me show you. Mark chapter 12, there was this kind of, they were trying to trick Jesus. They brought a coin to Jesus and they said, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar, right? And Jesus said, give me a coin. Got a coin. And he says, on this coin is the inscription of Caesar, right? And Jesus said, pay to Caesar what is Caesar and God what is God. Back then, Caesar thought he was divine. So to pay taxes to Caesar, to give yourself to Caesar, the government and your faith and your spiritual life was the exact same thing. On the coin, Jesus was looking at was in front image of Caesar on the inscription, son of Augustus. Okay? Basically, Caesar thought to himself, I am a political power. I have divine right. Therefore, the government, the Roman government, is in full control of your life physically and your life spiritually, okay? And when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God, you know what Jesus is saying here? He is making a very clear distinguishing mark. He says, look, the coin has Caesar on it, so give it to him. It has Caesar's mark on it, so give it to him. But you, 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 you have the image of God on you. So you give to yourself, you give yourself to God. Jesus was very clear. He said, look, if it belongs to Caesar, give it to Caesar. But you belong to God because you are made in the image of God. Therefore, your life ought to be given to God. Right? Pay your taxes. Do your civic duties. But never let the government have total control over you. You belong to God because you have his image on you. Basically, what Jesus is stating here is God's law, when God's law and state law contradicts, Jesus is saying what? 
God comes first. Oftentimes, in the Christian life, we put way too much power in the political order, believing that the political order has ultimate power over our lives, that they itself will create the change in our lives. But Jesus is saying something very, very unique that no one else is saying. You got to do your civic duties. You got to pay your taxes. You got to go out there. You got to vote. You got to do what you got to do. But remember, you belong to God. So the moment God's law and the state's law contradict, you follow after God's law. Jesus made a way to bring government into judgment. He opened a doorway for it. Eastern Europe, for example, the communist Eastern Europe, Berlin Wall, all those guys, right? It was a totalitarianism to the left. And when, when government takes control, they took control over the whole country. Who brought that down? Who resisted them? It was the churches. Because the moment you believe that the government or the, the, the state has control completely over you, it is God's people who are called to rise and say, your law states this, but I do not belong to you. I belong to my God. And your law tells me to live in contradiction to what my God tells me to do. And therefore, I cannot stand with you. In the same way, World War II, right? We got totalitarianism to the right. When the party ideal takes control, we had civil disobedience from guys like who? Diedrich Benhoffer, right? Uh, one of Evan's uh, um, spiritual, like, um, heroes, why did these people resist? Why did the church resist? Why did Dietrich Bonhoeffer resist? Why did they fight against the voices of the government? Because, because there was a higher order, higher authority than the state. It was God. When Pontius Pilate was asking the question, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, it is as you say, yes and no. On one hand, Okay? Jesus is saying, don't let any political government claim that they can speak in the name of God. Don't you ever think that the political power is the ultimate power. You know what's so sad lately as I've been watching the news, I've been watching things. I, I, I watch as sons and daughters of God. Sons and daughters of God create division and brokenness among people. Because of this very same thing, that they believe in some moment that a political power has ultimate power. That if I vote for this group, everything is going to be okay. If I focus on this group, everything is going to be okay. Everything is going to work out perfectly. Right? Jesus is saying yes and no. Because why? What I'm going to call you to do, to live out your faith, to live out my Laws, God's image upon you to live that out, it's going to change everything around you. But at the same time, at the same time, you were called as Christians not to let the government power, to, to rely fully on that to control you. You belong to God. Great example of this is Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. response to why he was performing civil disobedience, right? He was in jail in Birmingham. Uh, because he was doing civil obedience, disobedience against the laws of segregation. He did it peacefully, and he went to jail for it. You guys follow me? Okay. Now check this out. Lots of white Anglo pastors at that time looked at him and said, why are you breaking the law, Dr. King? Why are you 
practicing civil disobedience, Dr. King? Why are you not trying to live peacefully with the governing laws that is before you, Dr. King? You should not do that. And Martin Luther King said this, you ask me how can you advocate breaking some laws and abiding others? The answer is that there are two types of laws, the just and the unjust. A just law is a man-made law that matches with God's moral law. A just law is a man-made law that matches God's moral law, but an unjust law is a law that is not in harmony with God's moral law. But one who breaks an unjust law must do it if you're going to break an unjust law, which is segregation. Here, the law of the land is telling us that there are people who are better than others. There are people who are considered less than some. And Dr. King comes up and he says, that is not what my God teaches me. That is not what my God tells me in the word. That is not what my God declares to me. And so I will not follow that law. But in breaking the unjust law, what did he do? Openly, willingly, peacefully, and willingness to face the punishment. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, yes and no. Yes and no. The church is not meant to be a political power. You guys understand that? Oftentimes we have our government trying to be for the Christian vote. And so they whisper words to entice the Christian following. I'm not telling you to go left. I'm not telling you to go right. I'm telling you, follow after Jesus. You are marked in the image of God, your response, your focus ought to be in correlation to what Jesus himself did. And when Jesus was asked, are you a political person? Jesus said yes and no. I'm going to pay my civic duties. I'm going to do my civic duties. I am going to vote. I am going to have positions. I am going to pay my taxes. But I and made in the image of God. And if your law breaks my God's law, then my God's law stands firm. So on one hand, the way you bring the kingdom of God is not by claiming a political party has the well-meaning of the Christian faith. It doesn't work that way. The way you bring forth the kingdom of God is not by saying, if we don't get everyone to vote for a specific party, hell is going to come on earth. Who has bewitched you to think like that? Do you not know your God is sovereign? Do you not know that your God has written history? Do you not know that your God has made everything to work out for his good? It is not by political power that you bring God's kingdom. It is by the sons and daughters of the living God living out his truth to the world around them that brings God's kingdom to that. And the moment as a believer you begin to anchor yourself to a party rather than to Christ, you've lost your way. You've lost your center. You've lost the gospel. Power does not reside in parties 
and government and state. True power comes from humility, willingness to sacrifice, face punishment in the midst of all that for the sake of God's word, truth, to be established. Right? Am I telling you guys, should we just separate, not vote? And not do? No, I'm not telling you that at all. Don't withdraw. Don't withdraw from this. I want you guys to engage more into this. I want, as believers, that you will take your faith and go out into the world and engage in the politics of the world. Do not withdraw, but do not put your hope in the political party. I'm going to tell you this. I told you last time. It don't matter who's going to win the presidency on November 3rd on Tuesday. Whoever wins, I'm going to pray for that president. Because that president is not what my hope is in. My hope is in, not in a man who makes laws. My hope is not in what men can do. My hope is in the power of God working through the hearts of men. My hope is in God working through you. My hope is in that you, his bearers, his image bearers, will call and read his word and live out his truth to the world around you, changing your town, your city, your state, your country Piece by piece, it is the power of God working through the hearts of men. My hope is not in the political structures that we have. See, Jesus' answer was a perfect answer. Because if you say no, he's not a political leader, he's a spiritual leader, then you don't understand. You don't understand the radical political rearrangement that results when Christians live their lives in the real world. If you say, oh, no, 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 Christians, we're not political, you know, no, 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 we're, we're just spiritual. We just focus on the inside. It's all about what's going on here. We don't, we don't really worry about what's happening on, on the outside. If you think like that, if you think like that, you have no understanding of the power of the gospel to change the world. God has a kingdom that he has set up for you. He has a kingdom that he will bring to fruition and that kingdom will transform everything about the life we live today. So if you just say, Jesus is a spiritual leader, I'm just spiritual, I'm going to leave my spiritual side here, and I'm going to have a whole different political side to myself. You do not understand the gospel, because the gospel will change lives. But at the same time, if you say, yes, Jesus is a political leader, if you are a Christian, you vote this party, then you're in danger of saying, that there's a very specific Christian blueprint on how government should be run, how parties have to be, how economics have to be, and how everything has to go. It has to be done this way, completely. Political power is not how changes are going to happen. Are you the king of the Jews? was Pontius, Pontius Pilate's first question. And Jesus' answer was, Phenomenal. Jesus' answer was wonderful. Jesus' answer was perfect. He said yes and no. Yes. All right. What I will do will have political ramification to everyone. I'm going to bring slavery out of slavery. I'm going to elevate the heart of women to a place that you've never seen before. I am going to show you what a foreigner looks like in a country that adopts them. I am going to change the very course of sexuality in this world. He has humongous political ramification, but at the same time, no, I'm not a political leader, right? 
I'm not a political leader because I do not work within your system. I work in spite of your system. I bring changes not from your system. I bring changes in spite of your system. So how do Christians change the culture and social order? Okay, here it is. The third question, the Pontius, second question, the Pontius Pilate asked Jesus. First one is, are you, are you the king of the Jews? Yes and no. The third, second question is this. Why aren't you fighting back? Aren't you going to answer? Check in verse 3 and 4. He says this. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Pilate was amazed. Bible says, aren't you going to answer? They're killing you, Jesus. They're blaming you for all these things that you probably didn't do. They're accusing you falsely. Say something. Say something. They're trying to destroy what you are setting up. Aren't you going to fight back? What's your strategy? What's your plan? What's your four-year plan? Tell us what you have in store for us. Tell us what you're planning to do. And Jesus did not say anything. And Pilate was what? He was amazed the word amazed here does not mean like wow man you you crazy right i'm amazed how dumb you are right that was not the amazement that Pilate was experiencing Pilate, when he asked jesus aren't you gonna fight back they're falsely accusing you aren't you gonna say something aren't you gonna at least tweet about it right aren't you gonna do something to let people know your side of the story and Jesus did not answer. And Pilate was amazed. Why? Because he marveled at this person before him. He marveled at the calm and composure of this person before him. Jesus, Pilate saw something that Jesus was doing, and it blew him away because it was in deep contrast to everyone else around him. Everybody else was doing what? His enemies were frantic. They wanted Jesus dead. They wanted Jesus accused. They wanted Jesus to be brought down. And what was Jesus' response? Was he mad? Did he fight back? Was he trying to cancel them as they cancel him? No, Jesus was calm. Here is a world gone crazy, and here is this guy in the midst of being about to die, calm, at peace. His enemies were using power to harm Jesus, and Jesus was doing what? He was willing to lay down his power to forgive his enemy. And Pontius Pilate looked upon this Jesus and he was like, who are you? What is this? This is not normal human behavior. Because the moment when someone attacks you, what is your natural response? I'm going to get you back. The moment when someone accuses you of something, what is your natural response? I'm going to defend myself. When, the moment when someone begins to break you down, what is your natural response? I'm going to break you down. But Jesus' response was calm. I'm willing to lay it down. It's like, who are you? How does a Christian bring about culture and social order and change? Jesus' revolution was not the revolution you see normally. What is the revolution you see, even on the streets today? There is a problem, 
So our job is to do what? Take power. Break down the existing power. Take it by force. Exclude. Destroy your enemies. Silence those who speak against you. And then set up your system. Jesus' answer was what? I'm going to start my revolution through loving and forgiving my enemies. And Pontius Pilate was amazed. Like, are you nuts? How is that going to change anything? How is that going to make any type of dent in humanity, in social order? How is that going to change the world? They're trying to get you. You should get them back. And Jesus' response, his revolution, his plan, his strategy was what? Lay down his life for his enemies. Now, I want you guys to think about your, what you've been reading on tweets and Facebook and TikTok and whatever, it's, whatever it is you guys read your stuff on, right? And I want, you, I want you guys to think and imagine and dream about or, or see the people in whom you have read, watched, and responded to in the midst of all this. Was the response especially among believers, was the response, a response of laying down my life for the sake of my enemies, forgiving my enemies? Or was the response was, you dare attack me, let me attack you back. You dare put out 10 articles about me, let me put 12 articles out about you. You dare bring this into my life, I'm going to bring this into your life. Is that what Christ did? Is that how Christ responded in the midst of a political struggle? So my question is, why are we responding that way? Why are we responding in such a way that is normal to everybody else? When you look at your Lord who gave his life for you, when you look at your God who gave his life for you, his response to saving you was not, let me get you back for what you've done to me. His response to saving you was, let me lay down my life for you. See, the attitude of peace and the laying down himself for his enemies was what the first century Christians did to change the political order of their time. Let me say that again because I don't think you guys heard that, right? The act of peace and laying down the life, your life for your enemies was what the first Christians did to change the political structure of the world. It wasn't to burn down and rebuild. It was literally to let me die for you. Christians went out into society with, two, with these two things, and it completely changed everything. And I've, I, and I've talked about this so much, guys, Right? The Rise of Christianity, right, by this book, uh, it's a book by Rodney Stark. You guys want to ever read it, it's amazing. What did they do back then? Female infanticide, 140 to 100, male to female ratio. When a girl was born, what did the husband do? Threw them out. And it was legal to do that. It was legal to kill a female child because they didn't want, they wanted an heir, not a girl. And what did the Christians do? They wouldn't have that. They would not have that. They would not allow life to pass away. They would not allow death to happen. What did they do? They went out into the streets. They heard the cries of the young ones, and they picked those babies up, and they brought them to the houses of those who are having children. They brought them to the houses of those who were affluent and said, will you 
adopt and raise this child as your own so that this child can have life. And it was so. Women, women weren't allowed to have multiple lovers. Their husbands can. And what do the Christians do? They stop that. Husbands, one wife. That's it. Widowed women had to get married within two years because culture said women had no other job but to be married. It was required to be married. Yet Christian communities did what? They supported their widows. If you do not want to get married, it's okay. We are going to be with you. We're going to walk with you. We're going to be widows, <clears throat> orphans, foreigners. We're going to be with you. And what do we see? We see the rise of women flocking to Christianity. They saw a dignity, a humanity in Christianity, and it changed the social order. It put in place systems that began to bring about what we have even today of equality. Christians love the poor. We have a letter from Julian, an early Roman empire, who said, look, look, I can't stand these Christians because they're not only taking care of their poor, they're taking care of everybody's poor. Okay? And they're bringing these people into their communities, mixed races, different races, not just their own. They're bringing everyone into it. It does not matter who you are, where you are. Christians believed in what? Human dignity, equality, and so it does not matter who you are. We will bring you in. Everyone they knew was a sinner. Everyone they knew was a sinner, but equal before God. You see, the worst thing about the conversations that we've been having in our political order is that we think that we have to downgrade. Like we, we think about all these political stuff. Like we think about abortion. We think about um, racial inequality. Right? We think about um, caring for the poor. We think about the immigration. Right? We think about all these things. Okay? And what do we do? In order to prop up what we think is right, we will silence some of the topics that we kind of feel like um, not as important. As a believer, they're all important. As a believer, you fight equally for all of them. From the death of an unborn child to the racial injustice happening in your streets. Right? From the poor who are being ransacked. To the immigrants who are coming into the country. It is not one or higher than the other. It is equally above all. As a believer then. You don't just pick a side. And then say like, oh, this side really focused on this. But they're kind of low on this. So like, I guess that's better than nothing. No. As a believer, you stand with God. And if he says these things are important, then no matter where you go, no matter what you are Focusing on, they are always important. So if you stand on the right conservative side and you're like, look, guys, I believe in immigration. I want to fight for that. They're like, no, 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 no. If you want to do this, you got to be more on this side of the information. No. No. I will not. Because the political party does not mean that you have absolute authority. My God has absolute authority. And my God calls me to do what? To love the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners. And if you're on the left side of the political party and you're like, well, we got to care for the lives of those who are dying, the poor, that's just as much as pro-life. Yes, but the life of an unborn child is still a life of an unborn image of God. And I do not, we will not 
disregard that simply because you think it is something small. See, a Christian, you can stand on both sides and still remain a believer because as long as what? Yes and no. I'm going to bring social change to this world. My God's word and his truth is going to live out in me. I'm going to bring transformation to the world around me. I do not have to agree with everything. See, is Jesus conservative? The whole abortion and double standards sounds conservative, right? What about the poor and mixing of races? That's very liberal. Jesus is not conservative, nor is he liberal. He's Jesus. He's Jesus. As a Christian, it's easy to label conservative, liberal, right, left, Republican, Democrat, uh, Democrat. It's easy to go on these things. Am I telling you not to do that? Am I telling you not to perform your civic duties? Of course not. Go. In good conscience, go. But in the midst of disagreement, when God's law and state law comes into contrast with each other, you fight for God's law. Right? When diseases happen, when a plague hits the world back then, when the contagion pretty much left family members to throw away their other because they're afraid of being affected by the virus, the black plague, what did they do? The Christians hold themselves up into a little area, kept quiet for eight months, don't do anything. While everyone is freaking out, staying in their homes, what did the Christians do to change that order? They were out there. They picked up those who were thrown on the streets dying, and they nursed those people back to life in the midst of them themselves catching the virus and dying. That was the heart of the Christian. Calm. At peace, loving their enemies, forgiving those who have harmed them, and doing what's best for their neighbors. That was the heart of the Christian. And so when when Pontius Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? Aren't you going to respond back? Jesus is quiet. His peace, his willingness to pretty much be accused, to lay down his life for his enemies, amazed Pontius Pilate. Who are you that you would have the strength and the power to do such a thing, right? Why would they do that? How did the first Christians do that? And this, is, this may be the most telling signs, church, about your faith. This, must, this, this is probably the most telling sign about your Christian walk. The way the early Christians carry out such unbelievable social change was because when they looked upon Jesus, he was their peace. He was their comfort. He was their life. And so whether they lost money, they lost safety, they lost their lives, they were willing to lay all of that stuff down because they recognized if my God can lay down his life for his enemies, who am I? To hold myself up and not care for my neighbors. They loved their enemies. They did not idolize power. They didn't care whether you were poor, sick, or widow. 
They didn't care whether you were black, white. They didn't care whether you were brown, Asian. They drew everyone in. They changed society because they were willing to love their enemies. Church, I'm telling you this right here. I need you guys to listen to me. I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'm not telling you how to live out your political parties and whatnot, but I'm telling you that if you bear the image of God, if you carry after him, then would you respond like him? Would you respond in the same way, not seeking for the political party to become the ultimate power, not seeking for your own defense of your life, but willing to lay your life down? That is the mark, the hallmark of the Christian life. And if you ask to find the question, well, how did those Christians have such courage, such power, such direction to do such a thing? How did they have that power to carry out that work? Because it seems so sacrificial. It seems so one-sided. It seems so selfish on the part of the people receiving it and the, and the part of the people giving it up, it seems like they were losing more than they were gaining. How were the Christians able to do this? And this is the last part right here. Look at verse 5 to 15. And this scene was one of the unbelievable scenes. Okay? Unbelievable scenes. When Jesus, an innocent man, was paraded in front of a crowd of people, and Pontius Pilate has a rule. Every year, I am going to let go of one prisoner. And he brings out the most vile person, Barabbas, a person who tried to create insurrection against the Roman Empire and in doing so, killed people. A vile prisoner who is definitely guilty of what he's done. And he paraded Jesus next to him, thinking to himself, these people can't be dumb enough to pick Barabbas over Jesus, to pick the guilty over the innocent. They cannot be dumb enough to substitute freedom for a guilty person and let the innocent go free. They can't be like that. I want you to check this out. Verse 5 to 15, over 6. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do, the, to do for them what he usually did. Set one of the prisoners free, they cried out. So Pontius Pilate says what? Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed Asked Pilate. Did they answer him? No. What did they do? They shouted all the louder, crucify him. And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had, he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The last question that Pontius Pilate asked is, what should we do with this king? What should we do with Jesus? What should we do with the one whom you have brought to me, this innocent man? What should we do with him? And they cried out what? Crucify him. Substitute him. Substitute him for the guilty man. 
We want you to switch the guilty one and punish the innocent one. And when Pilate asked them, why? Why? Why do you want to crucify an innocent man? Did they answer? No, they did not. They ignored it. It's their way of saying, we know he's innocent, but we want him dead. Substitute him, punish the innocent, free the guilty. The question is, how did the early Christians understand and have the power to carry out their Christian life in such a way that changed the political order, the social order, the cultural order, without being political in the, present, in the process? How were they able to live in such a way where they forgave their enemies, where they died for those who were willing, who were willing to watch them die? How were they able to take care of those and whom no one, no one wanted to take care of? How would they go out of their way, put out their own money, out of their own pockets to do this? What gave them the power? It was the gospel of Jesus Christ, the picture of substitution. Do you understand that before a holy God, you are guilty? You are guilty before a holy God. There is nothing good in you, the Bible says. And yet, and yet, what did Jesus do? He substituted himself, the innocent one, for you. He was bound so that you would go free. He is the innocent punished in our place. Imagine, imagine this. Imagine you're caught red-handed. Imagine you know you're going to jail. Imagine you know you're going to pay the ultimate punishment for what you've done. You stand before the judge and he says, why should I let you go? And you can't claim that you have anything good to offer. You can't say, well, I was a good person. I went to youth group for, uh, when I was younger. I've, you know, gave something to the poor here and there whenever holidays came around. I'm a pretty much a good person. If you committed a crime and the judge is a good judge, he will look at you and he will say what? Oh, yeah, go ahead, sure, I'll let you off. No, of course not. He will say, I'm sorry, but those things does not make up for what you have done. Guilty. You're done. You're done. And that's your state, church. That is your state. Before a holy God, you are guilty. The only way you can get out of that is substitution. The guilty for the innocent. And Jesus in his state said what? I will die for them. I will die for you. I will give my life as a ransom for you. To the early Christians, Jesus was not a good teacher. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a nice example of dying for others. He wasn't just, he gave up his powers for others. To the early Christians, what they saw in Jesus was my substitute. I should have died. I should have been there. I should have been in that place. But he would not have it because of his love for me. He would not have it because of his love for me. And so what? I will give my life now as a substitute for those around me. The only way I can help the poor become rich is if what? If I become poor myself. If I put myself in that position 
be part of that community and raise them up. See, I, I hear a lot of love about Black Lives Matter, but I hear nothing about anyone willing to go into the ghettos, live among these people, and raise them out of poverty. Any takers? Takers? I hear a lot about people telling me, hey, man, we got to help the sick become well, but I see nobody wanting to step out there and care for those at the risk of you being sick. Because we're all afraid of dying. See, the moment you think like that, you have forgotten that you were already meant for death. If not for the love and power and grace of Jesus Christ, you would die. Not just a physical death, but an eternal death. I hear a lot about helping those in need. But I see very little of people giving their lives for it. Any takers? For the early Christians, for the early Christians, they saw Jesus as their substitute. And if he was able to do that for me, then I will do that for others. Let me tell you guys, whatever you vote for, whoever you vote for on the third, Tuesday, Whatever it is, remember, power does not come in the political party or whoever is president. True power comes when the people of God live out God's truth, empowered by the Holy Spirit, knowing the gospel in your heart, realizing that you were a sub- Jesus Christ was a substitute for you. That is the power to change the social order. So pray. Do your due diligence. Stand for whatever side you want to vote for. But remember, God's law is the supreme law. And if God speaks against something, then you, as a follower of Jesus, do not downplay it, do not whisper it, do not pass it up, do not swipe it aside. You, as a believer, says, yes, I do not agree with you, even though I stand with you. I do not agree with you, even though I voted for you. Do you know why? Because I do not believe that you have the power to change the world. I only believe in one. That is my God. And when you, church, Christians, are willing to do that, then we will see God's kingdom come. Yes, follow me? Then you will see. Do not worry about the political structure. It's going to go up and down all over the place. It's going to change throughout history. The one thing you know is what? God has won. When you take your final breath and you stare above God, I pray that the only thing that you would say to him is, God, I have stood with you. God, I have been with you. God, I have never left. God, I am for you. Nothing else. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come before you in this time. But we know that we are living in a very, very intense time in our culture, in our lives. And oftentimes, Father God, it is scary. And oftentimes, Lord, we don't know what to do. And I pray, Lord, that we would stand where Jesus stood. That we recognize that 
It is not in the power of man and what laws are passed by man that gives us hope or change. It is in your power working through the hearts of men. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would recognize that the the only way to bring change is that we are willing to lay down our lives for those around us, to forgive when forgiveness is so hard to do, to love when loving is so hard to do, to serve when serving is so hard to do. And God, I pray that we would never lose sight of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who gave his life for us. We are unworthy. We have nothing to offer but him. Father, come. Remind our hearts, convict our spirits. Lord, make the reality of the cross ever so more prevalent and real to our lives. I praise you, I thank you, and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.